You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. My name is Curtis Arnold, and I serve as one of the elders here. Today I'll be reading from the book of Romans, chapter 9, verses 1 through 29. And if you'd like to use the Bible in the seat back in front of you, it's on page 653. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish my, that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all and blessed forever. Amen. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but, but also when Rebekah has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You say then to me, Why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over his clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries are out concerning Israel. Though the numbers of the sons of Israel be as of the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. 
And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word, thankful for the truth that it brings us. We pray now for Jeremy as he brings the word. Would you give him insight and, and uh, the words to say? Help us as the listeners, as people of God, to lean in, to open our hearts and understanding that we might live full lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Curtis. Well, good morning. and so glad you're here as we restart our sermon series in the book of Romans. We finished Romans 8 near the end of the summer, and then we took five weeks off to walk through a conflict resolution sermon series. And so here we are this morning picking up in chapter 9, which may seem a little bit of a weird place to be picking up in a sermon series. And if you haven't been with us or you're new to Mill Creek, let me catch you up on the backstory of Romans so that we're all reminded of where Paul is at in this letter. There are three reasons I think Paul wrote the book of Romans. And the primary reason is because of conflict that was happening in the Roman church. So Paul had heard that the Roman church is really splitting apart at the seams between two factions, the Jews and the Gentiles. So Paul's heart was that this church would be unified. And the reason they're splitting apart is linked a little bit to a record from Suetonius who, who wrote that Emperor Claudius had kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And if you wanted to nerd out on all of the backstory about why Priscilla and Aquila ended up in Corinth and then they eventually could go back to Rome, check out the April 11th podcast where I go through all of this backstory that created this conflict as Jews were able to re-enter Rome and then they go back to their synagogue that had been led by Gentiles for five years and you would be able to appreciate why there was so much conflict in the Roman church. And so this is the first reason Paul's writing this letter is because he wants there to be gospel unity in the Roman church. And the second reason he writes the book of Romans or the letter to the church of Rome is because he's needing to raise funds. Paul's heart is for those who've never heard the name of Jesus to get to hear the gospel. Christ died for their sins. And Paul had spent about 20 years working his way city to city, and his model was usually something like this. He would walk into a city, he would go to the synagogue or any place that God-fearers were, and he would tell them, I've got good news for you. Christ died for your sins. The Messiah you've been waiting for, he has come. He died on the cross, they put him in a tomb, but he is alive. He'd share the gospel. People would hear the gospel, they would believe the gospel, and they would be gathered in small communities, Paul would raise up elders, and a church would be planted. And so after 20 years, Paul's feeling pretty good. There's been gospel saturation happening, so now it's time to go to Spain. And that's what Paul wanted to do, is he wanted to raise funds to be able to make it all the way to Spain. That was far west. And if you're going to think strategically about how is it to go church plant in Spain, Rome would have been a powerful and strategic church to anchor in before you make that jump. 
be able to raise some funds. So Paul's writing to address conflict. He's writing to raise funds. The third reason why Paul's writing is because he wants to be really clear about his gospel doctrine. The way it works in my mind is Paul's thinking, look, the way that we're actually going to address the conflict issues at this church, the answer to the conflict issues in this church is really anchored in the gospel. And as it turns out, if you've ever been through biblical counseling, or if you need some counseling, it's not reductionistic, and we're not trying to be overly simplistic, but whatever your problem is, the answer really is the right understanding and application of the gospel to your life. And so it is in the church in Rome. They had a gospel problem, and the answer is going to be found in the gospel, rightly applied. And so Paul wants to make sure they're clear on gospel doctrine because gospel doctrine can be leveraged into gospel behavior. And so Paul wants to make sure they're clear on what the gospel is because that's going to help them resolve church unity. And I think Paul also wants them to know his gospel doctrine so they can, in good conscience, decide whether they want to support his mission trip to Spain or not. Like a good missionary who shows up and says, hey, I'd love to have some funds. It'd be good of us to go, well, what do you believe? <laughs> what are you going to be preaching in Spain? Is it the real gospel or not? Then we'll make a decision if we can support you. Now, these are the three reasons I think Paul writes his letter to address conflict. He wants to raise funds, and he wants to make sure everyone's clear on what the foundation of the gospel is. And so in Romans chapter 1 to 8, we get all of this really crucial gospel doctrine. Paul starting right out of the gate saying, hey, you all need to know something. All of us stand before a righteous God and we are not righteous. And there is nothing you can do to be made righteous on your own. And Paul just hammers both the godless pagans as well as the God-fearers in the synagogue to let them know no one is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned. All have fallen short. And that gets you to what I think is the best paragraph in all of Romans. I think it's the best written paragraph of all time. The goat paragraph, as far as I'm concerned, Romans 3, 21 to 26, where Paul says, the righteousness of God the righteousness of God is not in the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And in Romans 3, 21 to 26, Paul then just continues to unpack the beautiful glories of the gospel. And so you make it all the way to Romans 8. This is where we ended at the end of the summer, and we're like on the top of Everest. Like, oh goodness, the beautiful gospel has so much to offer us. And those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he's going to glorify. Yes, God! And then you end Romans 8 with this assurance that there ain't, Nobody who can pluck us out of his hand. And you get ready to go, okay, he's laid out the beautiful gospel doctrine. We're ready. Address the conflict, Paul. Start teaching us about how the gospel doctrine is actually going to be leveraged into gospel unity. But then Paul does the weirdest thing. He takes a detour from Romans 9, 10, and 11, and he's going to talk about Jews and Gentiles. In fact, some have wondered... Why Paul does this? Some have thought he shouldn't do it. Just cut Romans 9, 10, and 11 out your Bibles and, and we'll just move on. And in fact, there are some churches, this is the way they handle this text. They'll preach Romans. Hey, we're going to preach Romans 1 to 8. Then we're going to pick up in 12. 
That's not the way we do it here. Those of you familiar with your Bibles, you may know Romans 9 is one of the trickiest passages in the whole text. And so my, I was telling my wife about this, and she said, you might just remind people about the conflict resolution sermon series we just finished. That if you get done with this and you're like, what in the world? Remember those principles? Maybe we could just, you know, practice those principles. This is undoubtedly the trickiest part in the book of Romans. To get our mind around, why is Paul doing this? Why is he spending three chapters to explore the relationship between Jews and Gentiles? It is confusing. If you've ever, just even listening to to Curtis read this, might have left you going, what is happening? I think the best introduction for why Paul decides to go down this rabbit trail is put by Pastor Tim Keller. Let me quote what he says at this point. I think it helps us walk in. Paul, at this point in his letter, can imagine somebody in the Roman church coming up to him and saying, wait, hold on, Paul. Like you said that when God calls somebody, God's going to bring them all home. And that's where we ended in Romans 8. But, but Paul, what about the Jews? Because God called the Jews... And God came to the Jews, but most of the Jews have rejected Christ at the present time. In case you're foggy on your church history at this point, very few Jews actually believe in Jesus. And so it feels to these Roman church like Jews are the example that actually makes your argument invalid. So maybe God's calling and purpose can be rejected. If God promised that Israel would be his people, yet the majority did not believe in Christ... Does that mean God's promise, power, or mercy is failing? Here then is what Paul envisions those in the Roman church thinking, that the Jews are proof that God's calling doesn't actually result in true salvation. And so in our section today, Paul's going to answer four crucial questions that the Roman church is going to answer. So I want to walk us through those four questions and answers. But once we get done with what the Roman church wanted answered, it's going to stir in us some questions we need to answer. Two parts of the sermon then. First, the crucial questions the Roman church wanted answered. And then the crucial questions we need to answer. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open to Romans 9? And my heart, like every week, is to preach what this text says. Not more, not less. I want to stay on the line of the text. And you can be the judge if that happens here in this sermon. Let me show you the four questions Paul's wanting to answer. Here's the first question Paul wants to answer. Does Paul love the Israelites who don't believe in Jesus? Having just finished on the mountaintop of Romans 8, Paul is aware that there's going to be some who go, hey, I've heard the rumor, Paul doesn't actually give a rip for real Jews. In fact, though Paul was born a Jew, though Paul's a Pharisee, he's turned his back on his people. He doesn't even care. So here at the beginning of this section, and and these first five verses, they're sort of a prelude to chapters 9, 10, and 11. This is the odd duck of our four questions because this one's Paul-focused, whereas the next three are all God-focused. But what Paul wants to make sure that everybody understands is he loves his people. Look in the text, verse 1. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Three different ways Paul's trying to tell the Roman church, I love Jews. You see the three? I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience is honest. Paul 
emphatically wanting everyone to know his deep love for Jews. Don't buy the rumors, Roman church. I do love my people. In fact, Paul pulls a play out of Moses' playbook from Exodus. Look at verse 3. Look what Paul says. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In Exodus 32, Moses had gone up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. And he had come down to find the Israelites doing what? Worshiping God? No! They've made a golden calf. And they're playing around the golden calf. And God says, that's it. They're done. We starting over. I'm going to know of these people. But of course, God wouldn't send a flood. He'd already promised he wouldn't do that. But he wanted to start over. He said, Moses, I'm going to start over with you, bro. And they're gone. And Moses said, don't do it. Don't do it. In fact, take it out on me. Take me out your book to save them. Moses, standing in the gap between a holy God and a sinful people might ring a bell about another man who stands in the gap. Because God doesn't take Moses up on his offer, but Moses having this heart of wanting to be a substitute. And here's Paul borrowing a play from that playbook in Exodus 32 saying, me too. I wish that God would take all of the judgment he has for Israelites and I would trade places with them if he would do it which is a remarkable amount of love that Paul, having explained these glorious gospel truths from Romans 1 to 8, would trade them if only his kinsmen would know Jesus. He continues in verse 4 and 5, sharing these eight different gifts, these unique privileges the Israelites have that make the Israelites so loved in Paul's heart. Paul wants to make sure those Jews that are sitting in the Roman church and any of the rumors that he doesn't love Jews are put down quickly. Paul loves his people. The answer then for question one, yes, Paul loves the Israelites. That leads then to a second question though that the church would have been wondering, has God's word failed since so many Israelites don't believe? Like the, the Bible says so many Israelites are being called, but none of them believe, so has God's word failed? Here's question two from verses six to 13, verse six. It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, end quote. Verse eight. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. What, what Paul's correcting here, and stick with me, I know this is dense, but it's important that you understand. The Roman Christians thought that if you are in Abraham's family tree, he's the patriarch. So if you've got the blood of Abraham in you, you're going to be saved. And what Paul's going is, that's never been true. And Paul takes them back to Genesis 18, and Genesis 25, which I trust all of you read this morning. If you didn't, here's what it says. In Genesis 18, we find out that Abraham has a son named Isaac, and then there's another son named, pop quiz, who's the other son? Ishmael. Don't say it too loud in case we're wrong. No, you were right. It's Ishmael. Isaac and Ishmael. 
And then in Genesis 25, Abraham has two grandsons. They're twins. And their names are Jacob and he's Just whisper it. <laughs> Esau and Jacob. That's right. All right. And what Paul's saying is, think about those two sets. They're all in the family tree of Abraham. Abraham's the promised one. But between Ishmael and Isaac, who does God pick? Well, he picks Isaac, not Ishmael. And between Jacob and Esau, who does God pick? God picks Jacob, not Esau. What Paul's saying is, look in your own Bibles. Look at the beginning of Genesis. It's never been if you're in the family tree, you're automatically part of God's family. I was hoping to be automatically entered. Well, it's not through a family tree that you get there. Because if it was purely on bloodline, then Ishmael would have been saved and Esau would have been saved. But that's not the case. In fact, then Paul quotes from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Paul's point is, God's word hasn't failed. Because God's word is consistent. God's never promised that everybody who's in the family tree is automatically saved. Ah, but if Paul loves the Israelites, and if God's word hasn't failed, well, then you have another question. And here's question three that Paul needs to answer. Is God unjust in punishing those whom he has hardened? Is God unjust? And this is the hardest part of Romans 9. And, 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 and if it feels a little dense, just take heart. It feels that way because it is. Paul's clarifying God did not call Ishmael and God did not call Esau, but God is not unjust. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For God says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, quote, for this very purpose I've raised you up, Pharaoh, that I, God, might show my power in you, Pharaoh, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, end quote. So then God has mercy on whomever he wills, and God hardens whomever he wills. Now, if you're listening closely, I trust you're feeling some angst here. If you're sitting here and you're feeling no angst, I'm afraid you're not listening very closely. Because at first glance, this seems like God is deterministic. That God, before any of us were created, went uh, heaven and hell. Uh, you're going to go to the good place, you're going to go to the bad place. Eternity with me, eternal conscious punishment. And that's just that. It's deterministic. And that's our tendency, is to functionally think God has just decided. He's already decided, so it doesn't even matter what we do. And this is, of course, what Paul realizes the Roman Christians were thinking, and that's why he's pushing back on it. He says, no, from the text, by no means. It's not injustice. Say, okay, Paul, well, then I'm going to need some help because that's what it sounds like. So Paul appeals back to Moses and Pharaoh. It's like Paul's doing his quiet time in Exodus the morning he decided to write this part. He goes to Exodus where we find this idea that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Okay, if you're here, you've never read Exodus, heads up, you're going to find a 
number of different places where when you're reading, it's going to say, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 4.21, Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, Exodus chapter 10, verse 1. To name a few, you're reading through the story of Exodus and you're going to go, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, it sure sounds like God's unjust because he's just hardening people. Ah, but you got to remember, not only did God harden Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and that's in the text too. That Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Where in the text? Exodus 7.13, Exodus 8.15, Exodus 8.32. Okay, so in view of God's justice, yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. And as we try to make sense of God's justice, we got to remember Pharaoh falls under the same umbrella that Paul's been preaching from Romans 1 to 3, that all stand under the judgment of God and none are righteous, no, not one. So Pharaoh himself would be in the subset of those who stand before God as unrighteous sinners. Pharaoh's just like you and I. And so while God did harden Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart as well. And long before God hardened Pharaoh's heart, keep in mind who Pharaoh was. Keep in mind who Pharaoh was. Pharaoh wasn't some little boy scout at Exodus 1 who showed up on your porch going, I just got to sell you some popcorn. I just really want to turn into a good guy. I'm happy to walk little people across the street. Pharaoh, Exodus 1, if you didn't know, you show up on the scene. Pharaoh has taken an entire people group and enslaved them. Talk about racism. And as if that's not enough, evil Pharaoh pretends to be God in that he makes a law that says any Hebrew who has a male child is to do what with that male child? Kill it. This is who Pharaoh is. Pharaoh's not some lovely role model that we run into in the text. Paul's point is, God is not unjust in hardening Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh also hardened Pharaoh's heart. Heart, As one commentator put it, somehow both of those things are true. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. But Jeremy, could God have hypothetically saved Pharaoh? Well, sure. God could hypothetically do everything. That's sort of the definition of being God. You can hypothetically do whatever you want because you're God. But while God could have saved Pharaoh, it's still Pharaoh who is responsible for his hard heart. And scripture is clear. God did not create Pharaoh's hard heart. God isn't determining Pharaoh's eternal punishment. And that's so crucial here in this question about justice. Let me say it again. Write it down if this, if you're struggling here. God doesn't determine Pharaoh's eternal punishment punishment. Rather, Pharaoh was guilty of sin, and God allowed Pharaoh to go his own way. 
a commentary here was so helpful. Share this quote with you. When God hardens someone, God doesn't create the hardness. He simply allows the person to go his or her own way. God hardens those he wants to harden and all those whom he hardens want to be hardened. This is a lot to take in. Maybe all of us would have benefited from an extra cup of coffee before we showed up. There's implication to Paul's point. Primarily, Paul wanting his Roman listeners to know God's not unjust. Even though many unsaved Israelites remain, God's not unjust for picking Isaac, not Ishmael. God's God's not unjust for picking Jacob, not Esau. Instead, 19 to 23, God's the molder. God's the potter. And who are we, verse 20, to call into question God? Who are we to tell God who he can or can't offer mercy to? So that's the third question. The final question Paul's answering in our section is this. Has God always planned on calling both Jews and Gentiles? Like, is that what the Old Testament says, that that's always been God's plan? This one's really easy. If you're taking notes, the answer is, yep, it's always been the plan. God has always intended to call Jews and Gentiles. Paul quotes from Isaiah and Hosea to make his point that long before Jesus Christ ever came to earth as the God-man to live perfect, die on the cross, and be resurrected, God's always planned on calling Jews and Gentiles. Hosea passage in chapter 9, verse 25, especially answers this question. Quote, those who are not my people, God says, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, the Gentiles, I will call beloved. Has God always planned on calling Jews and Gentiles? Answer from the Old Testament, yes, he always has. But now having walked through this text and answered the four questions the Romans needed answered at this section of Paul's letter, we pivot to some crucial questions we need to answer today. Move with me to the second part of this morning's sermon, the question we need answered. Here's the first. Does your heart break for the lost. Does your heart break for the lost? I'm I'm drawing this from chapter 9, verses 1 to 5, where I grant Paul, at the beginning, this little prelude to this section of Romans 9, 10, and 11, he doesn't say, you need to follow my example here and the way I love the Jews, but I can't help but thinking just pastorly as I read this section, how Paul loves his people. He loves his people, and he'd do anything. They wouldn't go to hell. And I can't help but wondering for us, like, do you love your people? Does your heart ache for people that God's put in your life who don't know him yet? Do you pray for your people? I know Paul's dense, and I know he's hard to understand. For me, too. But there ain't doubt how he feels about his people. Man, he loves his people and his heart breaks for them. And I wonder for us today, who's your people? Does your heart break for them? 
that your people definitely, I think, would include your family. So we want to pray that our families know Jesus and our extended families know Jesus. I think our family is more than just your people's more than just your immediate family. I think it's people you work with. It's people you live around. And whether your people watch football on Saturday and cheer their heads off or play cornhole or whatever it is your people do, wherever God's put you, Acts 17, God has decided in the span of all of human history, He's decided to put us right here, right now. And that isn't, that isn't, that's on purpose. And Acts 17 tells us that God actually decided who your neighbors would be too. And that's under His sovereign power as well. So where you're living and who you're connected to, that's all part of God's sovereign plan. And if you love Jesus and people around you don't, if your people don't believe in Jesus yet, these are your people. Does your heart break for the lost in your life? Oh God, would you give us tears for people who don't know you? Because people who don't know Jesus, they go to hell. If you're here and you'd say, Jeremy, I do, I do love my people, but all of my people are Christian. Well, then I'd encourage you to open up your sphere a little bigger because the example of Jesus and the example of Paul is to love people who are far from Christ. We're sent ones, sent to a dark world to go tell people about Jesus. That's question one. Second question we need to do business with is this. Is God's salvation based on anything we can do? Is God's salvation based on anything we can do? In Romans 9, 11, Paul makes our answer here so clear. God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Meaning, God did not save Isaac or Jacob because of anything that had happened in and of them. In fact, for the twins, Esau and Jacob, before they'd ever done anything, the text says, Paul, uh, God had already elected Jacob, which means that the salvation that Paul writes of in Romans 3, 21 to 26 but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, there is a consistency in that God has saved those, not because of anything they had done. There's continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So I would argue, friends, we must admit God's salvation of us has nothing to do with us. God's salvation... If you've been saved, it has nothing to do with you. And my salvation has nothing to do with me. God's salvation is not based on ethnicity. We see that because he picked Jacob, not Esau. God's salvation is not based on birth order. Esau was number one son. Jacob was number two. God's salvation is not based on obedience. Before anybody's born, God had already elected. God's salvation is not based on anything we bring to the table. It's based on God. But that doesn't mean God's willy-nilly in salvation. I love this quote from a commentary in Romans 9. It's not that God has no reasons. 
It's just that those reasons for salvation are not in us. Believers are not superior to unbelievers. Do you believe there's anything you can do to be saved? And if you're here and you think salvation is based on something you can do, repent. If you're here and you're just checking out Christianity, man, I'm still kind of test driving this thing. I wanted to see what it's all about. And there's some really good news that's coming, but you you gotta understand the bad news first. The bad news is this. You were created by God for his glory, but you have failed God. You failed him. And one day you will stand before the judgment of God and he will call you to account. And because of your sin, you will deserve eternal punishment in hell. But the good news is that that Christ came and he lived the life you couldn't live and he died the death that you deserve and he was resurrected three days later and he kicked death in the face and he has taken the punishment for your sin and he's been victorious and he would offer you his perfectness and take your sinfulness. What a great trade for us. All my sinfulness he would take and then he'd give me his gold medal of righteousness Here's the good news. There was one who stood between God's holiness and man's sinfulness. There was one who stood in the gap. His name wasn't Moses. His name wasn't Paul. His name was Jesus, and he has reconciled us to God. He's the substitute. If you're here and you don't believe that, repent of your sins right now. Call on Jesus. Call on Jesus. Please save me. He would. That's question two we need to answer. Here's question three. Is God fair for punishing someone he has not called? Is God fair for punishing someone he has not called? For anyone here still struggling with the dense part of Romans 9, I want to try to help you with what is so difficult and has been difficult for me. How do we reconcile Ishmael not being called and Ishmael not being called and Isaac being called? Or how do we reconcile Jacob is called but not Esau? Here's what was helpful to me. I pray it's helpful to you. We need to clarify our understanding and the difference between mercy and fairness. In our scripture, in this section, Paul's speaking about the mercy of God. But what we can do is we come to the mercy of God and we substitute our idea of fairness And we actually take mercy out of the equation. Like for those people who read Romans 9 and go, Pastor, I don't know if I can buy it. Usually, this is what's happening. And and well, this is what's happened for me. Maybe you've got a different issue. If if that's your, if you have a different issue, I'm happy to talk to you afterwards. But, But for me, I, instead of understanding God's mercy, I traded God's mercy for my sense of fairness. And when you begin to ask the question, is God fair, at least for me, we smuggle into this chapter this idea that God has to prove how every single person who's ever lived has been offered an equal chance to salvation. That's what we end up doing. We quit thinking about the biblical way that Paul's using mercy and compassion, and instead we say, wait a minute, God. I need you to prove to me how everybody had an equal shake. And what's being presumed in such a question, what we bake in, is 
functional rejection of mercy because mercy by definition is not fair. We're confusing categories. Instead, instead of worshiping God for his great mercy and saying, oh, that you have mercy on anyone is a miracle. Instead of that approach, we put God on the witness stand and we say, you owe me an explanation, sir. I'll be the one who asks questions around here, God. You tell me, how is it fair? But that response proves we don't understand mercy. We don't understand compassion. And I get it. I've been hung up on the idea of fairness in this chapter. If you are too, be careful that you don't bring an idea of entitlement into the text. Smuggling our human conception of fairness, and then demand God answer us. Because here's what scripture is clear on. God is always responsible for salvation. The Bible's clear. And man is always responsible for sin. If anybody's saved, it's because of God. Whoever's a sinner and in hell is responsible for this punishment. And instead of spinning your wheels on fairness, I would encourage you to think about God's mercy and respond to him in this heart. Thank you for your mercy. Your mercy's always undeserved. Final question we need to answer. Last question of part two. And this is really the granddaddy of them all. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation? Good grief, pastor. You waited to the end of the sermon to drop this technical Christianese jargon on me. I did. But if you need a synonym for it, you could call it big God theology. Here's what I think Romans 9 argues for. The sovereignty of God and salvation is, could be asked differently. Do you believe in big God theology that God is so big he could know before the creation of the world who he's going to for no, predestined, call, justify, glorify. That's Romans 8, 29 and 30. Is God big enough to do that? And, and is God big enough to know who's the people he's created, whose hearts want to be hardened, that he would come alongside and harden those with them? Is God big enough to be so just and so incredibly fair and yet so merciful and so compassionate is God big enough to save anyone he wants while allowing those who reject him to face their just punishment? If you have big God theology, you believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation. Here's how John Stott makes sense of this. He writes, if anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. Do you believe in big God theology? If you're here and you would say, I don't grant the premise, pastor. I want to be fair. This is probably the toughest doctrine question of them all. If it's not the toughest, it's top three. And, and there are lots of strong, thoughtful Christians, way smarter they have forgotten more things than I've ever learned who disagree with my view of Romans 9. 
and would answer differently than I've preached. So if you're here and you're on a different page, I hope you know you're welcome to disagree with me on Romans 9. And if we need to talk through that, we can practice those Matthew 18 conflict resolution principles. Please don't hear me saying you have to sign off on everything I've preached, Roman 9 says, to be a part of this church. If you see it differently, I hope you'll stay at this church. We love you at this church. And this is a point of contention for many Christians. If you are on a different place, this would be my view of Romans 9. If you're unconvinced, consider one last story. I didn't make this up. This is from Dr. Kennedy. Helps make real practical how Romans 9 works, at least in my view. Imagine there are five people who are planning to hold up a bank. They're friends of yours. You find out about it and you plead with them. You beg them, don't rob the bank. But finally, these five friends push you out the way and they start out. You tackle one of them and you wrestle them to the ground. The others go ahead, they rob the bank. A guard is killed. The four bank robbers are captured, convicted, and sentenced. The one person you tackled was not involved in the robbery, goes free. Now I ask you the question, whose fault was it the others were punished? And the one who's walking around free, can they really say, my heart was so good, I'm a free man. The only reason that person's free is because you tackled them and restrained them. So those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. And those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. Here's what I think Paul's saying in Romans 9. And Paul wanted the Jewish and Gentile Christians to get it then. Whatever the Bible teaches, I want to get and I want you to get. And God's sovereign and saving whomever he wants. He's fair for punishing those who are not called. There's nothing we can do to be saved. And may our hearts break for those who don't yet know him. Would you pray with me, please? If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.